0: Amen. Good morning. Good morning. I invite you guys to turn with me to Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28. We are finishing up the book of Acts. This is it. We have been in uh, Acts for a while. Uh, it's been uh, a little over a year since we started the book of Acts. We've been off and on. We've taken a few breaks, uh, a few different series, but, uh, but we've been in the book of Acts as a whole for a little over a year now, and, uh, and this is, we have reached the end, right? We have, we have reached the last part of the book of Acts, and Uh, And so that's where we're going to be this morning, wrapping up uh, the book of Acts, beginning in Acts 28, verse 11. So we're going to start this morning. Acts chapter 28, beginning in verse 11. This is what it says. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. After one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. The brothers there, when they had heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. When we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldiers who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. They said to him, "We've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers come here. Uh, none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you, but we desire to hear from you what your views are. for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From the morning till evening he expounded to them testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Disagreeing among themselves they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, "Go to this people and say, 'You will indeed hear but never understand. He will indeed see, but never perceive. For this, people, this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have been closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn that I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, without hindrance. Let me pray for us. We'll get into the word this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, that your word is a word that provides life, God, that, that we can hear from you in your word, that you... You can communicate directly to us. You can speak to our hearts and our minds and our lives, God. You can correct us and shape and mold us in the image of Jesus. You can you can s- it spark within us a passion and a fire for eternal things, God, that, that we can leave here better because of our time in your word together this morning. Father, I pray that you would shape and mold us in the image of Jesus. I pray that we would have ears that are ready to hear what you're saying to us and hearts that are ready to apply it, God, that our church would look different because of what, you've, what you're teaching us in, in your word. God, that our lives would look different because of what you're teaching us in your word. Father, we love you, and we praise you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts and our minds in a mighty way this morning. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Now, everybody loves a good ending, right? Everybody loves a good ending to a movie or to a book, and in fact, the, the ending to a movie or to a book is, is often the most important part. Right, this is the, the author's last chance or the filmmaker's last chance to leave you with, a, with an emotion or with a feeling. Or it's their last chance to, to leave you with an idea, something to, to contemplate. Like, think about a movie. This is, the ending is what you're going to leave thinking about. It's the thing that like whatever emotion you feel at the end of a movie, that's what you leave feeling. Like, this is the, the most important part is how it ends. I think of the, the ending to the book The Great Gatsby which is a book that most of you have probably interacted with at at some point in your lives. After everything in the book has played out, the narrator uh, Nate, uh, he, uh, or Nick, now I've blanked on the narrator's name. I believe it's Nick. Uh, The narrator Nick, uh, he reflects on everything that happened in the book of The Great Gatsby. He reflects on everything that happened, uh, that he has seen, that he has written about, and he's reflect ultimately on, on man's Empty attempt to, pr- to to pursue a dream, and he ends the book with this line: "So we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past." Like what a what a great line, right? Some of you are thinking, "Man, this guy's a nerd," and that's probably true. But this is widely considered one of the greatest endings in literary history. Because when you read it, it leaves you with this, this sense of melancholy, but it also forces you to think about the book and think about your own life and, and what the, the story means for you, right? Some of you may be more into movies than books, and that's fine. Think about some of the movies that you've seen and some of the, the major endings that you've interacted with. Think of movies like The Sixth Sense or uh, The Prestige or uh, the, uh, the Usual Suspects, which, side note, that ending makes less sense the more you think about it. But, uh, but <laughs> no matter what, like when you think of movies like that, the ending is what you leave thinking about. Like the, if you watch movies with, with major endings like that, you leave pondering that ending long after the credits have finished rolling. The, the endings are incredibly important to books and to movies. And so when we get here to the end of the book of Acts, we have an ending. And uh, after a year of us studying it, we have reached the final part of it. And Luke, like any good author, gives his readers one last thing to think about. Like Here at the end of the book of Acts, the, the reader is confronted one last time with the major themes of the book of Acts, and you and I, as readers of the book of Acts, have to wrestle one last time with one major question here in this ending. We'll see what that question is as the ending unfolds, but I want to I set the scene for the finale. Right? Luke uh, Paul has finally arrived at Rome. Here in Acts 28, in the middle of Acts 28, Luke has finally stepped foot in Rome. Verse 16, when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. We have been looking forward to Paul's arrival in Rome for a really, really long time in the book of Acts. This whole third part of the book of Acts has been foreshadowing and looking forward to Paul's arrival in Rome. And so now that Paul has arrived in Rome, We see that the gospel has made it, in terms of the book of Acts, the gospel has made it to the gateway to the ends of the earth. I want to think all the way back to Acts chapter 1. In Acts 1, Jesus tells his disciples that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And what we see at the beginning of the book of Acts is the gospel spreads in the city of Jerusalem, and the church has started there. And then we see the gospel spread out into Judea and Samaria when the church of Jerusalem comes under persecution. And so the gospel spreads. And then in the third part of the book of Acts, we follow Paul as he takes the gospel to the ends of the earth. It goes further and further than it ever has before, looking forward to this moment when Paul would arrive in Rome. And the idea is that Paul arriving in Rome is is that the, the gospel has arrived at the central hub of the Roman Empire. And from there, it'll launch out to the ends of the earth. All right, so this, this, for all intents and purposes, this is the, the Luke's version of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. Here, the gospel has arrived. Paul has made it to Rome. And in fact, it's incredible to see how, how God orchestrated things to get the gospel to Rome. Like God desperately wanted the gospel to get to Rome. It was God's desire to spread the word of God to the ends of the earth and to use Paul to do it in this case. And, and it's, it's awesome to see how God orchestrated things. We can see in verse 11 the irony that Paul was stuck on an island and they get on a ship. They finally find a ship and are able to go to Rome. And the ship that Paul gets on in verse 11 has the twin gods as its figurehead. So the irony is that the ship that God orchestrates to take Paul to Rome is, embla- is emblazoned with the, the idols of Rome. And Paul is sitting on this boat with the idols of Rome on the, on the front, carrying with him the message of life and salvation in Jesus to the city of Rome. Right? On the back of this boat with the, the pagan deities on it, Paul is, is, is going into Rome to proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus. And Paul has finally arrived in Rome, and, and now that Paul is there, Luke has two narrative questions that he is, he is uh, very intent on answering, uh, two questions that he wants to, to answer at the end of his book. And the, the first question is this, how will the Jews in Rome respond to the gospel? How will the Jews in Rome respond to the proclamation of salvation in Jesus? This has been a major theme throughout the book of Acts. Luke has recorded in pretty much every city how the Jews responded to the message of salvation. This is something that's, uh, that may not seem important to us as people far removed from, from uh, history, uh, from, from this time period, as people far removed from Israel. Uh, but this is a, a very important question because if we think back, the Jews were the people that had the Old Testament. These were the people who called themselves the people of God. These are the people that had all of the promises of the Old Testament text. And these are the people who are sitting there waiting for a savior, just on the edge of their seats waiting for God to send a savior. These are the people who thought that they were automatically enrolled in the kingdom of God, automatically gained citizenship in God's kingdom because they were Jewish. And so the the big question in the book of Acts is how are these Jews going to respond to the message of the gospel? How are they going to respond when they find out that Jesus is the savior they've been waiting for? How are they going to respond when they find out that they don't automatically have entrance into the kingdom of God they need to put their faith in Jesus how will the jews respond and if you think back from most of the book of acts they have not responded well most of the time some believe and and a church is started in whatever city that they are in uh, and many reject the message of the gospel and still others mostly the Jewish religious leaders in pretty much every city that they're in, uh, respond not just rejecting the message, but respond violently to the message and try to persecute Christians like Paul. So Paul has arrived in Rome with the gospel. How are the Jews going to respond? When Paul gets there, one of the first things he does is he wants to gather the Jewish religious leaders together to explain his upcoming legal case. This is what he says in verse 17. After three days, Paul called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered to him, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem to the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. So Paul quickly explains, hey, I'm I'm innocent, I'm not someone who who has gone against the Old Testament. I'm not someone who has gone against Judaism. I'm not trying to stir up any trouble. Uh, I I was falsely accused by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And then when they handed me over to the Romans, the Romans quickly figured out that I was falsely accused and they wanted to set me free. And so Paul's kind of setting out his case uh, before these Jewish leaders in Rome saying, look, I'm clearly innocent. Everybody knows I'm innocent. I'm just, uh, just throwing that out there. Verse 19 but because of the jew because the jews objected i was compelled to appeal to caesar though i had no charge to bring against my nation so paul further explains his, his case and why exactly he was in rome appealing before the emperor and and paul just wants the jew, jewish leaders to know it's not he's not there before the emperor to try to slander the jewish people He's not going to try to to level charges against the Jews. He isn't trying to stir up any trouble. He's not trying to make a, any, any cause any harm to the Jewish people. He has no charge that he wants to bring against his nation, the Jews. He doesn't have any problems. He just wants to be set free because he's innocent. That's the only reason that he's there. That's all he wants to do. Verse 20. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. So in short, the speech that Paul gives to the Jewish leaders there in uh, Rome, uh, what Paul tries to do is tries to show them that he's not a threat. He's not a threat to them. He's not trying to speak against and invalidate the Old Testament. He's not trying to to go against Judaism. He himself is still culturally a Jew. He follows the Old Testament. He follows the Word of God. He loves the Lord. He's followed the Lord his entire life. He's never done anything against the Jewish people. And so he's not there as a threat to the Jewish people. He's not there having committed all of these crimes that the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem says that he did. He's not a threat. That's what he's trying to get across to the Jewish leaders there in Rome, that, that he's not trying to stir up any trouble or any problems. And, and if the, the wording that Paul says, for example, in verse 20, when he says, it's because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing these chains, if that sounds familiar to you, it should, because it's something that Paul has said at least two or three times in the book of Acts. It, it is a line that Paul has used repeatedly. Paul has tried to reaffirm his innocence multiple times in the book of Acts. I want you to think back to to Paul's journey in Jerusalem when he was, uh, when a mob came up and he was falsely arrested by the Romans there in Jerusalem. Twice he tried to make his case before the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem that he was innocent. And he stood before the council and said, I am innocent of all these charges. I am, have a clean conscience before God. Earlier he stood on the barracks, uh, the steps of the barracks and said, I am innocent of anything Uh, and he outlined the gospel. So multiple times Paul has tried to tell the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem that he's innocent, and he used basically the exact same argument outlining his case. And you know how they responded? With an angry mob. They they, they rose up in opposition to Paul. They responded violently to him, and they tried to murder him. So at this point in the book of Acts, when Paul has has outlined his case when he said that he's innocent, we have, been, we have seen that every time he's done that, the Jewish leaders have responded violently to him. They have tried to murder him. They've leveled accusations against him. And so as we read this, and as Paul is speaking this, we should be on the edge of our seats just wondering how the Jews are going to respond to this because it has not gone well up to this point. Right, Everywhere he's gone, he's been persecuted and reviled and uh, had, uh, attempted murder against him by the Jewish religious leaders. How are they going to respond when Paul uh, tries to assert his innocence again? Verse 21. They said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported uh, or spoken any evil about you. So we can, we can let out a huge exhale, a huge sigh of relief. We can see it in, you know, in Paul's face that he's, he's laying out his case saying, I'm innocent, and the Jews respond by saying, yeah, we don't have any problem with you. And nobody's said anything uh, to us from Jerusalem. Nobody's come from anywhere else in the world to say anything bad about you. We don't have any problem with you at all. Like what a, what a huge sigh of relief for Paul. right? They're, they are not, the Jews in Rome are not interested in his legal case at all they they do not care about him they don't see him as a threat they don't they they don't care that he's there in rome they don't have a negative opinion of paul and that is a huge sigh of relief now if i'm if i'm writing the book of acts and and if, as we're reading one of the major narrative questions that that i want answered and that you probably want answered is what happens to paul's case right what happens does paul when paul gets before the emperor does his case get dismissed? Does he get, does he get let out? Does he get executed? Like what, what happens to Paul's legal case? But Luke seems completely disinterested in giving us that information. Luke doesn't include any note at the end of the book of Acts with what happens to Paul. There's no little detail at all about, hey, Paul did this or Paul did that. We, we don't get the answer at all to what happened to Paul's legal case at the end of the book of Acts. We, we find out later from, from history that it's, it's highly likely that Paul uh, won his appeal, that he was released, uh, and that he was able to proclaim the gospel for, for several more years before being arrested again and killed in Rome. Uh, but th- that's, that's likely what occurred. But Luke doesn't give us that information. And the reason that Luke doesn't tell us what happens to Paul, Paul's legal case is because the book of Acts is not about Paul's legal case. The book of Acts is not about what happens to Paul in the judicial system. The book of Acts is not about Paul's safety or security. We have seen him go through a lot of bad things already. The book of Acts is not about those things. And so when, Paul, when Luke is concluding the book, causing us to think about the major themes, what happens to Paul in the justice system is not one of them. That, that information does not help answer the question, how did the Jews in Rome respond to the gospel? The Jews in Rome do not care about Paul's legal case, which sets up verse 22. Essentially saying, we don't care about you being here, we don't have any problems with you, but, verse 22, we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So Paul is standing there for the Jewish religious leaders and he gets a sigh of relief when they say, hey, we don't have any problems with you, but, we kind of have a problem with what you're teaching. Like, you're not on trial to us, but your teachings are. Because we, we haven't heard anything against you. We don't have any problems with you. But but everywhere that we have seen Christianity taking place, we hear Jews saying that the, the teachings are bad. We hear Jews saying that the teachings are unbiblical, ungodly, un uh, and so we 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 need to hear more about this. You're not on trial, but your your teaching is. This gospel message you proclaim is something that we're going to have to look into. So again, at this point in the book of Acts, Paul is sitting there in front of a group of Jewish leaders having to defend the gospel. And it has not gone well throughout the book of Acts. Every time he shares the gospel, some believe, some reject him. Usually they rise up in, in anger and disgust, but, but it has not gone well. So how are these Jews in Rome going to respond the gospel verse 23 when they had appointed a, when they had appointed a day for him they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers and from morning till evening he expounded to them testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus both from the law of Moses and from the prophets so they all gathered together to hear what Paul has to say and what Paul does is he walks them through the Old Testament The Old Testament is what the Jews believe. They they believe everything in the Old Testament. They believe that it's the word of God, and so Paul walks them through the Old Testament, and he shows them a couple things in the Old Testament. He shows them about the kingdom of God, and he shows them about the ultimate ruler of the kingdom of God, the Savior that they've been waiting for. These are things that the Jews already believed, These are the things that that the Jews have already been looking forward to. They've already been looking forward to the eternal kingdom of God. They thought that they automatically had entrance into it because they were Jews. They've already been looking forward to the Savior, the Messiah, the King, who is going to rule over them. They just thought it was going to be an earthly leader who is going to to wipe out the Roman rule and reestablish uh, Jewish dominance. Uh, But what Paul does in walking through the Old Testament... As he tells them that the the kingdom of God is is ruled by the Savior, by the King, by the Messiah, and that the one that they've been waiting for is Jesus. And he points them throughout the Old Testament to the the, the texts that show that the one they've been waiting for is Jesus. That Jesus is the one that fulfills the prophecies. That Jesus is the one that fulfills all of the Old Testament types. And so the Savior that they've been waiting for is Jesus. And that entrance into the kingdom of God is not automatically earned because of your Jewishness, is un- automatically earned because you're religious. Instead, entrance to the kingdom of God is gained through faith in Jesus. He shows them and outlines the gospel message in, uh, through the, throughout the Old Testament. And this is how they respond in verse 24. Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. More of the same. Tragically, there's a group of a large group of Jewish people who are gathered to hear Paul speak, who are who are sitting there listening to Paul as he outlines the message of the gospel as he as he points them to the Savior that they've been waiting for, as he highlights the means by which they can enter the kingdom of God and they hear all of the good news, they hear the message of salvation, and most of them reject it. The people who have been waiting for a savior, the people who, who have the promises, who, who are call themselves the people of God, are standing on the outside of God's kingdom, refusing to go in because they have heard the message of the gospel and they've rejected it. Praise the Lord that some believed, that some people became Christians, but it should break our hearts that a large number of Jews who had the scriptures to point them to Jesus rejected the message of salvation. After a little bit, uh, the entire group decided to disperse because Paul offended them by calling them out of their disbelief and by uh, by saying something that really offended their sense of Jewish superiority. Look at me in verse 25. Disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So what Paul tells them is, he quotes the prophet Isaiah, and he he throws it at them and says, the prophet Isaiah has rightly spoken of the Jewish people saying that you have ears to hear, you have hearts that should be ready to, to hear and, and apply the word of God, but your hearts have grown dull and your ears can barely hear. You have the whole message of salvation sitting there right in front of you, but you're, you have your eyes closed, lest that you should see with your eyes, hear with your ears, understand with your heart, and turn and receive salvation. So you are closing your eyes, you are closing your hearts, you are closing your ears, and you are refusing to believe the message of salvation. It is right there in front of you, and you are refusing the message of eternal life. So he says, because you have rejected the message of salvation, God is sending the gospel not just to the Jews, not just to the people who claim to be the people of God. God is sending the message of salvation to the Gentiles, so that people of every nation, every tribe, every tongue, all around the world can hear the, uh, the message of salvation, and everybody can have an opportunity to enter the, the kingdom of God, to receive citizenship in God's eternal kingdom. How are the Jews respond in Rome? More of the same. Some believed and some disbelieved. And we see in uh, at the end this reaffirmation that the gospel is going to go forth to the Gentiles around the world, and the responsibility of every single person who hears the gospel is to listen. To believe. Second question that Paul, uh, that Luke wants to to answer here, at the end, is what will Paul do, in Rome? What is Paul going to to fill his time with? What is Paul's uh, activities? What will they look like in Rome? And and if you've been uh, with us in the book of Acts, if you've uh, been with us as we've been studying the book, the answer to that question is probably going to be pretty obvious to you. But, but I want you to, to, to look at why it's not obvious or why it shouldn't be obvious. So I want you to think about the thousands of answers that Luke could give us about what Paul was going to do in Rome. Right? Like, what was what what about, is, was he going to get a job? How was he going to support himself? What was he going to do to, to, for a living situation? Like how was he going to, to have money to operate in the city of Rome? What would be his employment? And Luke could have easily given us that information. What, what were going to be Paul's hobbies? What was he going to do in his free time? Right, what, what was Paul's schedule going to look like? What would Paul do to, to, give, to get rest and leisure incorporated into his schedule? What would Paul do with his legal case? How is he going to get out from oppression and in, injustice in Rome? What would Paul do in Rome? All of those are good questions, and they're things that we would ask if we were talking about our our friend Paul. You know, our buddy Paul went to Rome and. We would want to know what's he going to do when he gets there. What's his life going to be like? What are his time and his habits? What are the things that are going to fill his days? We would want to know those things, but Luke doesn't answer those questions. That's not what Luke is concerned about. That's not the thing that Paul does that matters in Rome. What does Paul do in Rome? We begin in verse 30. And If you're wondering, uh, some of you may have a verse 29 in your Bible. Most of you probably don't have a verse 29 in your Bible um the uh, The reason for that is are uh, the 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 research that we have, the manuscripts that we have show that the the verse twenty nine uh, more mo- more than likely, almost a hundred percent for sure, was not written by Luke. It was added centuries later by scribes or by a well-meaning theologian. And so they uh, incorporated that in there. and then uh, cent- uh, a little while later, when they added chapters and verses into the Bible. The, the version that they used had a verse 29 in it. And so they, now that we've taken verse 29 out, because it wasn't written by Luke originally, uh, we kept verse 30 as verse 30, so that regardless of what version we're using, we're at least all on the same page. It's just a lot easier. So if you're wondering why we skipped verse 29, it's because there is no 29 in uh, the original manuscripts of the book of Acts. So beginning in verse 30, Luke answers the question, what did Paul do in Rome? And this is what he does, verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, meaning in some apartment or a duplex that he rented out, uh, that he was, he was renting there, uh, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, without hindrance. What did Paul do in Rome? He shared the message of salvation in Jesus. And he proclaimed the fact that there is a coming kingdom of God, that there is eternal life that is available, that God is making open and available to those who would listen, and that he called people to enter the kingdom of God. The most important thing that Paul did in Rome was share the gospel. It wasn't what his employment was. It wasn't what his hobbies were. It wasn't his rest or leisure. The most important thing, the thing that Luke records for us in the book of Acts that Paul did in Rome is proclaim the gospel with boldness and without hindrance. So in light of those two questions, there's one last major question that you and I have to answer as we conclude the book of Acts. And it's something that we have to answer as individuals and it's something that we have to answer as a church. How will we respond to the call to enter and proclaim the kingdom of God and to magnify the Lord Jesus? How will we respond to to the call to enter and proclaim the kingdom of God and to magnify the Lord Jesus. As we've seen in the book of Acts, I'll repeat it one more time, the word of God is calling us to enter the kingdom of God. That's what Paul did as he approached the Jews in the city of Rome. That's what Paul did as he approached those in his house, all who came to him in the city of Rome, as he proclaimed the message of the kingdom of God, that God is making for himself a people. God is calling a people for himself out from a broken and dark world, and he's offering his people eternal life, citizenship, and his eternal kingdom. And he is offering that to every single one of us, this free gift of eternal life and citizenship in his kingdom. But the problem is that no matter uh, what we do, you and I cannot earn a spot in the kingdom of God. We cannot earn an entrance ticket. It doesn't matter how many religious things we do. It doesn't matter how many good works we have. It doesn't matter how many, uh, you know, what number of prayers we send up to the Lord. It doesn't matter what number of Bible verses we've memorized. It doesn't matter uh, what, how many times we've walked an aisle or been baptized. Like, none of those things can earn us entrance into the kingdom of God. We are not good enough. We are broken sinful people. And if you're sitting there thinking, I'm not that broken, I'm not that sinful, I'm better than most people, the the standard that God has is perfection. And the Father has elevated the Son to be King and Lord of all. Jesus is the, the Savior, the Lord of all creation. And every time that we act as if Jesus isn't the Lord of all creation, including ourselves, we are rebelling against God. Because God has determined and decided and declared that Jesus is the King and the Lord of all. So every time we act like it's not true, we are rebelling against the Father. We are all sinful, broken, rebellious people. None of us can earn a spot in the kingdom of God. But God still offers it anyways. God still offers us the chance to enter his eternal kingdom. And he does so not from our good works, Not because of religious check boxes, but he does it through the work of his son. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the the eternal son of the Father, God himself, came to earth, added humanity to his deity. He lived a perfect life and he willingly gave up his life on a cross to give us forgiveness of sins. And three days later, he walked out of the grave, never to die again, raised to the right hand of the Father to offer us eternal life and entrance into the kingdom of God. And that is something that is available to every single one of us only through faith in Jesus. Now that we have the gospel message in front of us, now that we have the scriptures that point us to the salvation that's available in Jesus, now that we know the means of the entrance into the kingdom of God, will we enter? Will we respond to the call to enter the kingdom of God? And will we respond to the call to proclaim the kingdom of God, and magnify the Lord Jesus in the world. The most important thing that Paul did in the book of Acts, the most important thing that Paul did in, uh, uh, in Rome was to share the message of salvation. Everything in Paul's life revolved around the fact that he had entered the kingdom of God, that he was a child of God, that he is someone who had eternal life in Jesus, and that he wanted everybody to know it. He wanted everybody else to know that there is entrance to the kingdom of God available for them. He wanted everybody to worship Jesus, to lift up his name because he is king of kings and lord of lords. So the most important thing in Paul's life was proclaiming the message of salvation in Jesus. And everything else that he did worked around that. Will we respond to the call to proclaim the message of salvation? Is that the ambition of our hearts? Is that the thing that we want to see happen in our lives? Do we long for our lost friends and family members and coworkers and neighbors? Do we long for them to know Jesus? Do we desire that they would enter the kingdom of God with us? Do we desire that they would view Jesus as he is, as the mighty Savior? Is that the desire of our hearts? We should be people as individuals, and we should be a church that are weeping for the lost, knowing that they are lost and without hope. Should be people that are on our knees in prayer, begging God to move in the lives of the people around us, begging God to use us to reach people with the gospel. We need to be people that are praying for revival, that long to see our community come to know Jesus. And we need to be people that God can use. God has already decided that the way that he wants to reach people with the gospel is through his church. The way that he wants to reach people with the eternal salvation is through the people that have already experienced it. And so will we be a people who carry that gospel to the world? I want us to look in this room and see the number of empty chairs. I want us to look in the back and see the empty space that we don't set chairs out because we don't need to. And I want us to look at that and have hearts that are break for that because God's desire is that this room would be filled with people worshiping him. Because every empty seat in this room and every blank space in this room represents someone who is lost in our community, who does not know Jesus, who has never experienced eternal life, and who will not be part of the kingdom of God. And our hearts should break for that. And then the desires of our hearts should be to organize our life in a way that, that proclaims the kingdom of God to the people around us and magnifies Jesus in the world. Will we respond to the call to enter the kingdom of God and to proclaim the kingdom of God and to magnify Jesus in the world? That's a choice that you have to make as an individual. And it's a choice that we collectively have to make as a church. Will we reach our community with the gospel? Will we reach out uh, in the world around us and to the ends of the earth? Will we reach people with the gospel? God is calling you this morning If you have never entered the kingdom of God, he is calling you this morning to enter it for the very first time. And if you are part of the kingdom of God, if you have recognized who Jesus is, he is calling you to be so passionate about that that you share the message with the people around you. He is calling us this week to go out and to reach people with the gospel so that next week when we gather, we can celebrate what God has done through us. As we see people enter into the kingdom for the very first time, will we be a people? who worship Jesus and celebrate him and proclaim his name until he comes, or will be, we be a people who disbelieve or believe and stay silent? The choice is yours. This morning, if you've never entered the kingdom of God, if you've never trusted in Jesus for the very first time, uh, if you never trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'm inviting you to do that for the very first time. In just a second, we're going to sing. As we sing, I'm going to be standing right here. I would love to pray with you and to talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus. We'll have people in the back who would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus. If you don't want to come to the front, you don't want to walk down, that's fine. Catch me after the service. I'd love to share with you more about what it means to follow Jesus. Do not leave here this morning without knowing that you are part of the kingdom of God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for the salvation that is available in Jesus. God, I thank you for the eternal life that is available to the, us even though we don't deserve it. And God, I thank you that it's available not just to, to me and to the people in this room, but God, it is available to all those outside of these doors, all those we interact with, the people in our family who are lost and hurting and broken, the people in our community, in our neighborhoods, and our jobs. God, the people that, that, that do not know you, God, you, you, you have eternal life that is available to them you have made it a freely you have made it freely available in jesus Father, I pray that we would be so mesmerized by the the gospel message that it would have such a profound impact on us that we would be so amazed at what you've done for us in Jesus that we can't help but share it. That it would be the desire of our hearts to see the people around us know what we know to worship Jesus as we worship him, to enter the kingdom of God as we have. God, I pray that we we would have the desires of our hearts to be that the world around us would enter into the eternal life receive it as a free gift from Jesus. God, I pray that you would fill this room with worshipers, people who are praising the name of Jesus, who have come to a saving relationship with you. God, I pray that you would fill it with our friends and our family members, our neighbors and our coworkers, God. God, that we would would see this room filled with people who are worshiping with you and that you would use us to make it happen. I pray that you would do a work in our hearts, not just to to want to know you, but that, that we would want other people to know you as well, that that would be the greatest passion of our lives, and that everything that we do in our life and in our world would revolve around that task. Father, we love you. We praise you. We know that you want to work in our lives. That you, We know that you want to work in our community. We know that you want to bring people to yourself. And we pray, God, that we would join you in that work. We love you and praise you. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.